This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. And joining in studio, Aaron Perini. What is your role in the Trump campaign? So I'm the principal deputy communications director on the campaign. So talk to the press a lot, work with them, work stories, uh, do some media interviews on behalf of the president. It's a pretty cool job. We are glad to have you here in the studio. And you're no stranger to Capitol Hill. You worked on the Hill for how long? Five years. I was lucky enough to work for Senator John Thune of South Dakota for three years at Senate Republican Conference. And then I went over to the House for two years and worked for Republican leader Kevin McCarthy. And how do you translate that into what you're doing today? Or are they two very different animals? All three are very different animals. The Senate, the House, and the campaign are very different. Um, But, you know, the experience, especially in the House, working in the Speaker's lobby, that back hallway behind the floor where people vote from, uh, you talk to reporters all the time. You just stand there and you engage with them, talk about what's going on in their lives or what bills they're working or what stories they're working on, what what members they're looking for gives you a really good sense of things. So on the campaign, that translates into, you know, going to rallies. We're going to events. We're talking about what the president's doing, how the campaign's working. Uh, and, you know, you just get to have that real level of comfort uh, and feel that you can express yourself well on behalf of the president in kind of any circumstance. The Speaker's Lobby can be very hectic. Uh, campaign rallies are known for their loud music and the excitement that goes with them. So it was it was a good training ground to come onto the campaign. Not only loud music, but also huge crowds this past week in Manchester, New Hampshire. I know you were up there. People waiting up to 24 hours in the rain and in the sleet to get inside the arena, the SNHU arena. And that's not uncommon. Why? It's not uncommon. We see it every city, every state we go to, that people are just really excited to see the president in person. Not only is he the most accessible president in terms of how often he's in front of the American public, but a lot of Americans felt like they didn't have a voice in D.C., that they didn't have somebody fighting for them. President Trump became that voice. He wasn't afraid to push back and to be himself and to defy all the D.C. norms to the highest level of success possible, the presidency of the United States. So people get so excited. We have some of our line of you know, people who wait in line. They call themselves the front row Joes. They like to come to every rally they can. And then I remember last time we were in Manchester in September, I think. We were there, and the woman at the very front of the line camping out overnight, it was her first rally. She brought her daughter with her. They were so excited to see the president. And these are the same people that they love to, they'll give you the last sandwich they have or the shirt off their back. They're just so excited to be there, and it's it's a lot of fun. So what is the pitch? Why should voters reelect President Trump? The pitch is simple. It's promises made and promises kept, you know. What were, what were promises made by then-candidate Trump, somebody who'd never been in office before, we have tangible results. We have a booming economy, you know, to almost 2 million more jobs than job seekers, uh, record low unemployment, wage growth. And for those at the bottom percentiles, their wages are rising faster than they have in a generation. We have the opportunity now as Americans to stand stronger because of President Trump his work to rebuild the military, his work for veterans, his work on STEM issues and uh, the women's global economic development work that Ivanka's been doing. I mean, these are really tangible results that Americans are feeling. You know, Gallup came out with a poll yesterday, 60%, 61% of Americans feel better now about the economy than they did three years ago. Americans know that this is working. And so, we get another four years, if President Trump gets another four years, it means we can really lock those in because 
all of this success can be undone immediately by any of the Democrats if they were to win. I want to share with you a story. I was at the Red Arrow Diner, which is a must, <laughs> yes. must uh, go to place in New Hampshire, and people talk politics over coffee. And there was a couple there, uh, a gentleman wearing a MAGA hat, very supportive of President Trump, and his wife, who said she voted for Donald Trump four years ago, but she's exhausted, she's tired of the tweets, she's tired of the drama. So what do you say to that voter who may like the policies but don't often like the harsh rhetoric and the personality? Well, I mean, that's a really personal decision for someone, but I think the results are really what people show up for. Uh, President Trump is unapologetic about who he is. He is the same man he was when he was, uh, you know, on The Apprentice. He's the same guy now as president of the United States. He's not going to stand down and he's not going to be afraid to to engage and to, and to fight back and to make sure the truth is out there. Um, maybe it's not everybody's style, but it works and it is working. And I think the country sees that. Um, you know, Twitter, you can turn that off. Only about 20 percent of Americans have Twitter when we look at it. So it's such a small fragment of what this president does. And honestly, it's part of his success because the news media, the the institution of, of the news really puts a large filter and lens on what the president does. And when he engages directly with supporters, A, across all social platforms, he reaches an audience larger than the Super Bowl. And we know internally in the campaign that when he talks straight to voters, talks to Americans without the media filter, State of the Union speech is a great example of that. The it is always generally very well received. We see something around 80 percent give it an give it an approval of what the president says. So, yeah, Twitter works and it works for this president. So what's the challenge for you as somebody who is one of the chief spokespersons when you have the president who is basically the communicator in chief? It actually makes our jobs really easy because uh, we know where we're supposed to be. We know what we're saying. We follow the president's lead. We stand behind him and we support and we fight to make sure that that narrative is out there, that his facts and the reality are out there. Because, you know, it, that's really important to making sure that the American people hear what's going on. And they're not hearing it just from The New York Times or MSNBC. They're hearing it from the president directly. So we're never confused on where we need to be because the president leads and we follow. As you know, C-SPAN covers all of the uh, the MAGA rallies, including the one in New Hampshire. And this is one of the moments from Manchester. Let's listen. And I had somebody behind me who was mumbling terribly. Mumbling. Mumbling. Wow, wow, ho, ha. He was mumbling. Very distracting. Very distracting. distracting. I'm speaking and a woman is mumbling terribly behind me, angry. There was a little anger back there. We're the ones should be angry, not them. That, of course, a reference to the State of the Union address and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Will we hear that, the lock her up chant during the course of this campaign from the crowds? I mean, rally goers are excited. And so they love a good chant and they love the opportunity to feel like their voice is being heard in this huge crowd. You also hear a lot of USA chants in four more years. Uh, when Don Jr. was up, they were chanting 46. <laughs> they get really excited. Um, and it's a great opportunity for the president to get into these crowds. He loves it. He gets such energy when he stands in these crowds and goes to these rallies. He, I mean, it's why we're doing them so often because... It's one of his favorite things to do. Um, so I don't think it's going anywhere. It's it's a chant that's been around for a while previously with Hillary and now with the speaker. Uh, 
But, uh, yeah, I don't see it going anywhere. Do you think Don Jr. is interested in running for public office? I don't know what Don Jr.'s plans are, but he was such, he, when he comes on a rally stage, the crowd is so excited to see him, any member of the family. And Don holds no punches just the same way his dad does. Uh, he's always engaged. Obviously, Laura is a senior advisor on the campaign, Laura Trump, Eric's wife. She's a huge part of our team. Eric's a big part of our team. And obviously Ivanka's role at the White House, Jared and Kim Guilfoy. I mean, it, it's a family affair when it comes to the president and this reelection. Uh, who knows what comes next for them? But it, it's just a lot of fun being around them. There are two moments during the State of the Union, one in which Democrats said the president did not shake the speaker's hand. And of course, the other moment at the end of the speech where the speaker ripped up the, the State of the Union address. Your reaction to both of those moments? The president also didn't speak, uh, shake the vice president's hand in that moment. So it kind of only got, you know, he didn't shake anybody's hand right there, right? So, uh, and what Nancy Pelosi did was just an abomination to the role of Speaker of the House. That's supposed to be you're third in line for, the, you know, you're third in line in presidency. Like you could become president of the United States if something happened. And she sat there and and scowled and the president's right she was muttering people can see her talking throughout the speech trying to throw her own commentary in while the president of the united states is speaking then she practices ripping the paper and then she rips the speech apart she ripped apart what was i think one of the greatest state of the union addresses ever given it was patriotic i truly don't think it could be any more patriotic unless the president set a bald eagle free across the, the house chamber it was awe-inspiring we're talking about a military union and honoring a tuskegee airman and a scholarship opportunity for someone and and she just decided to try and make it about politics and he was making it about america and it was I normally say things like it's a split screen presidency. You see the president signing USMCA and then you see the impeachment on the floor, right? You see the strength with the president continuing to move forward and you see what the Democrats are doing. You see, you saw it in one camera shot on State of the Union night. The president giving this awe, awe-inspiring speech about the strength of the country and the direction for the future and Nancy Pelosi scowling and then ripping it apart. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's just kind of really sad to see not only what she's become, but what she's made the speaker's office. In terms of the president's campaign, finish the sentence. The impeachment of Donald J. Trump did what for the reelection campaign? Made the campaign stronger, 100%. Since Nancy Pelosi started the impeachment, we brought in $117 million online alone from over 1 million new donors. We uh, see that at our rallies, especially in January, we were in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We saw that about 58% of the registrants for that rally modeled as Democrats or not as Republicans. And we see that almost everywhere we go. Uh, the rally in New Hampshire, we saw that 17% of the registrants were had not voted before. These are new voters. They are bringing more people into the fold. They're engaging this campaign. They're bringing more to the president's ability to win again. We're not going to have to worry about resources on knocking doors, training volunteers, engaging voters, push ads, persuasion ads, all of that. We're not going to have to worry because Democrats keep bringing more money into our coffers and more voters to our side. I want to turn to the campaign in just a moment, reminding our listeners that we are talking with Aaron Perini. And if you can sense a little bit of the upstate New York twang, <laughs> you are from where? I am from Rochester, New York. Went to school where? I went to the Aquinas Institute of Rochester, which I'm very proud of. I'm a very proud Aquinas alum. And then in college? I went to the University of Connecticut and graduated from there. How and why did you get interested in politics? 
Uh, it's uh, it's kind of the family business a little bit. My grandfather is the last Republican to win in the city of Rochester. He was a city court judge by the name of Gary Smith. He ran, and we used to, me and my cousins, when we were little, used to have these yellow shirts with iron-on felt letters that said, on the front, send my grandpa back to court. And on the back, it would say, re-elect Judge Gary E. Smith. We would wear these shirts and march in parades as little kids. And so my Girl Scout leader was in fundraising and political fundraising, and she's like, you're either going to be in politics or a lawyer. And I was like, no, no, not me. But she was right. And I interned at the convention in 08 and, you know, down the rabbit hole I went and I've never looked back. Do you remember the first time you came to Washington, D.C.? I do. It was actually in Girl Scouts. Uh, our sixth grade trip was to D.C. Um, actually, a woman I later worked with in Kevin McCarthy's office gave me my tour that year uh, when we all came. Uh, I remember I remember the first time I came to D.C. saying, I want to live here. This is where I want to be. This is the city I want to be in. The Capitol, we didn't get to go to the White House because there was some meeting. But, you know, going outside the White House and just seeing all the monuments and every, I mean, just as a, you know, as an 11, 12-year-old girl, I was so excited to be in the city. And I knew this is where I wanted to be. And I knew that someday I could get here. And I have. <laughs> If he's reelected, could you envision yourself in the White House in some capacity? Uh, I would be so honored to work at the White House and specifically at the White House for President Trump. Um, I would love that opportunity if it presented itself. We've got to win first. We've got 264-ish days left until But who's election. counting? No, we've got big, big countdown signs at the office. We have two of them, two, uh, you know, electronic countdown signs. We're always keeping our eye on the prize, but I... Who knows what comes next, but I would love to work at the White House. As you know, back in 1992, James Carville said, it's the economy stupid. So if in a bumper sticker beyond make America great again or keep America great, what, what is the message of the Trump campaign? Success. Not only success for America, but success for Americans. You know, the economy. Yeah, it is the economy. We've got one of the strongest economies in generations because of President Trump's policies. The deregulation, the record deregulation that this president put forward that has helped businesses and opportunity, the tax cuts, the largest ever tax cuts for the American people, including opportunity zones, which is allowing for investment into struggling communities in the United States to try and build them up and get more in there um, economically. I mean, I can't think about one part of this this country that hasn't been positively affected by this campaign by this president, you know, you look at things like the opioid epidemic, HR6, when we brought that across the finish line when I was still in the House two years ago, the largest ever bill to combat the opioid epidemic in the United States. That is huge. And that's that's saving lives. That's making sure families don't have the worst day of their life finding out that they've lost someone they love. That's what President Trump cares about. He loves fighting for the American people and uh, the success of this country is, is really what this campaign's about. But as you know, those tax cuts came at a price, a record debt and deficit, the president putting forth a budget that includes some pretty significant cuts to social programs. So how do you respond to the Democratic charge that uh, it's a budget without a heart? Well, uh, that's really funny to hear from the Democrats because I don't think the House Democrats were putting out a budget. You know, Nancy says, you know, show me your budget and I'll show you your values. Well, apparently they don't value anything because they won't put anything out. 
the president's going to put forward a budget that's got aggressive policies because that's the kind of person he is. Let's remember he was also the only president to ever put paid family leave in a budget. And now it's the law for federal employees that they get paid family leave because President Trump took those fights. He's going to make aggressive moves. He wants this country to be better. And he wants people to go and and work and make sure that there's opportunity in this country. Uh, so Democrats, they it's really hard for them to have the opportunity to say that they that, you know, this president anything negative about this budget because they aren't willing even to engage. I'm sure you get this question often when you're back in Rochester when they say, so, Aaron, what is the president like? Off camera. How do you answer that? What is he like one-on-one? He's almost exactly what you see on camera. He's very funny. He's got a really good sense of humor. He likes to play pranks on people. Uh, How so? uh, Just things where, like, you know, he'll try and, like, hide the ball on you a little bit and make sure you're paying attention and... uh, so he's he's just got a great sense of humor, and he loves what he does, and he's always working. One of the hardest workers. Um, that's one of the things that I always see that's just astounding is the idea that, like, you always got to work like you're always behind. We're never where we want to be. We're always got to keep moving forward. Um, he's very funny. He's a hard worker, and he loves his family. And I think, you know, people see a little bit of his humor. You know, at rallies, you get a little bit of that. Um, but... I think it's one of the things most people don't get to see about him. And as you know, somebody who has to deal with the media, the media often uh, a target of his scorn and criticism, the fake media. He goes after the press corps. So how do you square that? Well, a lot about working with press is the relationships. Um, You know, being on the Hill for five years, I had a lot of relationships in the press. But obviously the White House team and reporters who cover the White House and the campaign are different than the ones on the Hill. But it's a constant conversation, and and it's our job to push and, and get the message out there. And, and why aren't you covering this? Why, you know, this voice is wrong, or or this tone is wrong, or you're missing the like. It's a it's a dance we do all the time. But I hear from reporters all the time, all the time about how we they hear from us the most. They know they can get a response from the Trump team easiest. That they they never wonder where we are or what's going on because they can consistently hear from us. Um, and we do push back. I mean, it, it's, it's it's a dance, but that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to make sure that things are getting covered, like Bloomberg's comments that surfaced recently about stop and frisk and throwing kids against the wall, right? We had to push that out there to make sure it was getting covered because it's very easy for that to get lost. And so it's our job to use the voices that exist on the campaign to make some news sometimes. But to that point, the president defended that in 2016, saying that that was the right policy. It's not about the policy. The argument isn't about whether or not stop and frisk is the right policy. It's the dehumanizing and the degrading language that Mr. Bloomberg used when he talked about stop and frisk, that these are car- that these kids are all uh, Xerox copies of each other, you know, and that we put police into these neighborhoods, into these minority communities. He said it himself because that's where all the crime is. That's what he said. And the way you get a weapon out of a kid's hand is to throw them against the wall. It's not about the policy. It's about the way he talks about minority communities in the United States. That's the issue. Let me get your reaction. This is uh, one of the newest campaigns from the uh, Bloomberg campaign. We'll talk strategy in just a moment. Ask not what your country can do for you. It was all... Ask what you can do for your country. Knock the crap out of them, would you? Their cause must be our cause, too. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, and I wouldn't lose any voters. And we shall overcome. As soon as we left, they knocked the... 
out of everybody. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. Americans are generous and strong and decent, not because we believe in ourselves. I'd like to punch him in the face. But because we hold beliefs beyond ourselves. Grab him by the The future doesn't belong to the faint-hearted. This is the crap we have to put up with? It belongs to the brave. I never want to be called loose. I'm asking you to believe. Not in my ability to bring about change, but in yours. How about if I take his money... But in the end, I screw them and don't do anything for them. And Aaron Perini, you know, this is the first of what will be a series of ads by the Bloomberg campaign. How do you respond to that? When people punch at the president, he always punches back 10 times harder. That's always who he's been, and that's always who he'll be. He's unapologetic about it. Uh, He doesn't back down from who he is, and he shouldn't have to. Listen, he's not going to say things the way everybody wants because he's not a politician. He's not some smarmy D.C. person who has always wanted to be president in the United States. He's just a businessman who saw some issues with this country and, and wanted to step up. He had a much better life before he was president, much more comfortable. And every day he just gets his he just gets kicked so many times. I mean, you saw that press conference he had after the impeachment ended and Really, I think people could see how hard it was for him and his family. This is a man who gets attacked pretty brutally on a very regular basis, including us as his staff, his supporters. There was a van drove into a tent of volunteers just the other day. Uh, So he's not afraid to fight and he's not afraid to say what other people may not like. But at the end, the results are what matter, and these are really good results for the country. What is your biggest criticism of the mainstream media, whether it's CNN or CBS, the New York Times, the Washington Post? Where where do you point the finger in terms of the the argument of fake news? I I think the argument of fake news comes from those who are trying to sell books, those who are trying to make themselves a media personality. They're more worried about them getting the headline than they are about getting the headline right. And that's the problem. It's this celebrity. It's part of what you saw at the White House press briefings where they would just scream at Sarah Sanders and interrupt her and not let her answer the questions. People have become more concerned about being the celebrity than being the journalist. Um, and that's where there are issues. That's where they're more concerned about getting their dig in and adding a pithy comment than they are about actual journalism. So let's turn to the president's strategy, Aaron Perini. Here are two ads, one called Change, the other which aired during the Super Bowl. America demanded change. Donald Trump wins the presidency. And change is what we got. Under President Trump, America is stronger, safer, and more prosperous than ever before. Best wage growth I think we've seen in almost a decade. Unemployment rate sinking to a 49-year low. Unemployment for African Americans fell to a new low. Unemployment for Hispanics hit an all-time record low. And ladies and gentlemen, the best is yet to come. I'm Donald J. Trump, and I approve this message. President Trump is changing Washington, creating 6 million new jobs, 500,000 new manufacturing jobs, cutting illegal immigration in half, obliterating ISIS, their caliphate destroyed, their terrorist leader dead. But the Democrats would rather focus on impeachment and phony investigations, ignoring the real issues. But that's not stopping Donald Trump. He's no Mr. Nice Guy, but sometimes it takes a Donald Trump to change Washington. I'm Donald Trump, and I approve this message. So that pretty much encapsulates what we've been talking about, the message of the Trump campaign. 
That's right. Uh, those were the change ad. The first ad you played is this, one of the Super Bowl ads we ran, one of the two we ran. Uh, and the second one is one we've run uh, numerous times. Yeah, the no more Mr. Nice Guy. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't take a nice guy. It takes a Donald Trump. That's right. I mean, it's about the economy. It's about the success of this administration. It's about the fact that people wanted change. They didn't want Mr. Nice Guy. They wanted Washington to be different. And they got that with President Trump. And so it's been great. And we had another Super Bowl ad. We're actually the first presidential campaign to ever buy time in the Super Bowl. Bloomberg bought his after ours, uh, but we bought ours first. And we bought the 60-second block and we broke it up into two ads. The other ad was the Alice Johnson ad talking about how uh, she wanted to thank, you know, President Donald John Trump for giving her another chance at life. Um, and it and it talked a little bit about the success of the First Step Act. You know, Alice Johnson was kind of a catalyst in, in, in moving that forward and being a voice for allowing, you know, nonviolent offenders to get another chance. Uh, so we've got such a great message to share, and I actually really love our ads. And I'm curious, as somebody who understands politics and media, just generally speaking, whether it's the Trump campaign or anybody else, how important or effective are ads, especially in our 24-7 digital world? Ads are good for, uh, like, persuasion a little bit. Like, to show the Alice Johnson ad's a really good example of that. People, when you watch that ad at the beginning, you don't know it's a, pre- you don't know it's a President Trump ad until Alice says, I want to thank President Donald John Trump. Um, and I think that, that kind of blows people's mind a little bit to be like, what? whoa, this woman's out of prison. She's free. She's free to hug her family, as she says, and to get a second chance because of President Trump. So that kind of can change people's mind because they're like, am I getting the whole story? We, we show that in focus groups. Um, and you know, people will say, am I hearing all the right things from the news? Are they being honest with me? Because I've never heard this. I've never heard about these opportunities, about the First Step Act, about how that's changing everything. Um, so it, it can help kind of change the lens a little bit for people. As you look at the Democratic field, Iowa and New Hampshire now in the rearview mirror, we're moving ahead to South Carolina, Nevada, and Super Tuesday. What's your overall assessment of this Democratic field? This Democratic field is fractured. It's disorganized. And Iowa was a dumpster fire for them. That was terrible. They couldn't get their results out for a week. To know who won, uh, you know, the clear winner was President Trump because we got those results really quickly. Ninety-seven percent of the of the people who showed up in Iowa for the president voted for him. Um, the, the Democrats are a mess. And then Joe Biden fled New Hampshire before the night was even over to get down to South Carolina, ignoring Nevada. You know, when we look at this, I mean, this is Bernie's in a good place right now, but it's so fractured still. It's really going to be hard to see who makes it past South Carolina, because it seems like that's Joe Biden's ride or die at this point. He's got to win there, or he's got no delegates at this point to try and make it to their national convention. Bernie's got delegates at this point, and he's got money, no matter who the nominee is, to make it to Milwaukee. And that means that if they get to a contested convention, it's, I mean, that's a very real likelihood at this point. The Democrats walk into Milwaukee in July for their national convention, and they're going to have a they're going to have a brutal battle on their hand to get to the I think it's like 1990 or something. 1991. 1991 that they need to get the nomination. I mean, the longer they fight, the more we win. How do you run against a Senator Bernie Sanders? What's your message? It's the policies. It's I mean, he is an avowed socialist himself. Says it himself, I am a socialist democrat. And okay, when we look at his policies versus our policies, 
we see that the president wins every time. So we're going to have to be out there and push and have the conversation. Um, that would be a fun debate night, I think. I think everybody would kind of enjoy that. Uh, and I think, the, <laughs> I think the president would enjoy it, too. Um, but when you look at the policies, like, do you support allowing violent uh, you know, violent people who are in jail for life, terrorists and rapists, to vote? Or do you support a president and a nominee who allows for nonviolent offenders to get a second chance and opposes allowing violent felons to vote from jail. And when we look at those policy contrasts, the American public sides with President Trump. And so we feel good about whoever whoever comes out of the Democrat process. We feel good about what we can do to, to beat them. As you know, the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg, said that uh, when Donald Trump was on The Apprentice, he was wearing the American uniform. So how do you run against the former mayor? somebody who is 38 years old, a huge generational difference between President Trump and his candidacy. Well, Mayor Pete's got a lot of issues when it comes to this, the work he did in South Bend. He doesn't have a record of success. He's extremely um, you know, novice to this entire thing. And obviously, President Trump was new to politics. But Mayor Pete, he's just got such kind of a... a lack of enthusiasm underneath him. You look at, I mean, I think Iowa and New Hampshire are two great examples of what we're looking at enthusiasm gap-wise versus President Trump and whoever the nominee is on the Democrat side. President Trump had 120,000 votes in New Hampshire. In Iowa, 10% of the people who showed up to vote in the Republican caucus were either new same-day party registrants or hadn't voted before. That's that's enthusiasm. You don't see that anywhere on the Democrat side, not for Mayor Pete. And so we know policy wise, enthusiasm wise, we're well ahead of any of them. And what about Michael Bloomberg if he is the nominee? Mini Mike. That's what the president likes to call him, Mini Mike. I mean, he again, he's got he's. What do you think of that, though? The name calling back and forth? Oh, I I think it works for the president. We sell pencil neck Adam Schiff T-shirts on the campaign. Uh, we fully lean in and embrace the president's style of communicating and the way he does it. And it works, you know, sleepy Joe, crazy Bernie, um, you know, crooked Hillary. But it works for him. Mini Mike works. For, the president has a style all his own and it works. So we've got no problem with it on the campaign. But Bloomberg, again, he has a lot of he has a lot of issues in the minority community and it's not just that one file that came out recently. He has said this time and again about minority communities, about how that all the crime is there and he and he puts all the cops there and he's got a real issue. And New York City has a lot of issues that make it easy to run against. Um, the president's a strong guy and he's delivered for the American people. And we feel very good about what, again, doesn't matter who it is. We feel like we've got a really good chance. We don't take anything for granted, which is why you see a little bit of what we did in Iowa and New Hampshire. 80 surrogates in Iowa were out there, we're caucusing, we're engaging with voters, and we're just kind of flexing our muscles a little bit to see how our ground games work in New Hampshire. Same thing, sending, you know, over a dozen surrogates out to New Hampshire to polling places to talk to voters, to get people out to the elections. You know, President won in New Hampshire with about just shy of 86 percent of the vote, which puts him just about where Ronald Reagan was in 84. Which leads me to my next question, in ter- just in terms of organization, because you have the White House, you have the Republican National Committee, and then you have the Trump reelection campaign. Give us a sense of how the decision making process comes together. The president aside, obviously, he's out there communicating and, and leading the charge. But but how does it all come together? What's what's the structure like? So the RNC and the campaign work hand in glove. Um, 
our our offices are based out of the RNC annex uh, in Virginia, where we where we kind of uh, hub together. Uh, but Brad Parscale is our campaign manager, and he runs the show. He's in constant contact with the family, with the president, to talk about what's going on and what we want to do and how we want to do it and what the decisions are that we've made on the campaign. Um, and it's our job in the campaign to implement that and to make sure that's getting done. The RNC has the data trust. So when we get rally data, we're dumping that in there. We're talking about phone numbers and hard contact lines with voters so that we can engage with them. And it all just works symbiotically. Um, you know, Obviously, there's a hard line between the White House and the campaign for obvious reasons. But, uh, you know, the president's in constant contact with Brad, con- like uh, – I've been with Brad a bunch of times and the president calls and I, I can't hear anything. Unlike other people who say they can hear the president on the phone. I've never heard that. But I'm like sitting there and I'm like, I'm sitting next to guys on the phone with the president of the United States. It's wild to me. It's wild. But uh, it, it, everybody works together all the time. And I think it's working really well. And you have already alluded to this, but what's it like for you personally? And, and, and what's a typical day like for you? Uh, Is there a typical day? Yeah. If I'm in D.C., I'm up early if I'm home. I'm up early and I go to the gym because it's the only time I can guarantee if I'm at the gym at 5 a.m. I can get a workout in because I don't know what the rest of the day looks like. Uh, It's reporter inquiries. It's working stories, longer stories, uh, seeing what data we might have that might be a good angle, um, reading the news, seeing what's going on to see if there's a way we can put our voice into a conversation somewhere and how we're doing that working with our coalitions team and our events team to make sure our surrogates and our voices are out there across the country and what plans we can be putting together to make the biggest splash and impact across the country. When I'm on the road, all bets are off. I don't know what my day is going to look like. A rally day generally starts really early. We do a lot of local TV. We do a lot of local press when we get into any area. Generally, even rally day starts the night before for me. I'll do some preview interviews with reporters in wherever we are in the country um, to talk about what's going on and why we're there and what they can expect at the rally. Um, and then usually the day after the rally, I'm on TV first thing in the morning, you know, four or five in the morning, talking about how great the rally was. Uh, it's pretty nonstop. It's very consistent. Uh, I'm home, I think, for a few days right now, so I'm very excited to get a little time with my husband. But no day's the same. It's working stories, talking to reporters, and just fighting where we can. And you mentioned your work on Capitol Hill, but what else trained you for all of this? I guess it all goes back to your grandfather. Yeah, yeah grandpa. And it's it's actually it's one of my favorite parts of the campaign right now is when I get to do TV. And grandpa will be like, I saw you on Fox News. I saw you. And it's just it's one of my favorite. It's probably going to be one of my favorite memories from the campaign walking away from all of this is my grandfather's 88 years old and still living in Rochester. And, you know, I'll call him after, you know, I do an interview and he'll be like, Oh my gosh, look at my granddaughter on TV. He's just so excited. It makes me so happy to make him so proud. Um, But, you know, I I just always kind of like wanted to do this. There were only two things I ever liked in life, politics and horseback riding. And I'm a fine horseback rider, but I didn't think I could make a go of it as a career. So this is kind of where it landed. And I never said no to an opportunity because I didn't know where I was going or what this. I moved to Wisconsin twice. And the first time I moved there, I'd never been to the state. Just, okay, there's a campaign job. I'll go do it. Great. I'm excited to have an opportunity. So I moved around the country a bunch and took chances where I could. And, you know, I think just that, like, kind of fearlessness, that ability to just be like, okay, let's give it a try. I think that that kind of sets you up for the campaign because you, you never know what's going to happen. But you got to be willing to try. 
If people want to follow your work on social media, Aaron Perini, how can they do so? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Aaron M. Perini, P-E-R-R-I-N-E. I don't only tweet about my job. I also tweet about UConn. I tweet about UConn sports all the time um, or Real Housewives. <laughs> Love Bravo TV. So I try and keep it not entirely. My life's not entirely my job, but I try and share a little bit of other stuff too. So when you're home with nothing to do... <laughs> Binge watching? Oh my gosh. I love all Real Housewives shows on Bravo TV. My husband and I went out to California for the Rose Bowl. He's a University of Wisconsin alum uh, in January. And we went to LA and we went to Lisa Vanderpump's restaurant called Sir, which they have a show for called Vanderpump Rules. And I got to meet her and I lost my cool. I was like, oh, this is the best day of my life. This is the best day of my life. I mean, other than marrying my husband. And she's like, okay, all right. Like, I just. <laughs> When I'm not at work, I'm just like, Bravo TV, I want to sit on my couch and watch The Housewives, watch Vanderpump. That's that's like what I, yeah, I'm not that, I'm not that cool. I just love Bravo TV. Who knew? Maybe, <laughs> maybe a little bit of C-SPAN in between. Yes. I was, hey, I can't tell you how many late nights I was watching C-SPAN when I was working in the Senate, working for Senator Thune. We were always clipping off of C-SPAN, always, always like watching the floor. I mean, you guys cover it all, so it, made, it makes it really easy for us. We approve that message. <laughs> Erin Perini, her title is the Principal Deputy Campaign Spokesperson for the Trump 2020 re-election campaign, joining us here in Washington. We thank you for stopping by. Thanks for having me. And a reminder, be sure to follow us on Twitter, at C-SPAN Radio. And this podcast, The Weekly, is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app or wherever you download your favorite podcast. We thank you for listening.